Matthew chapter 1, it's time for Christmas. Well, not quite, is it? Um, but we're in the run-up. Advent. Um, Richard is running some Advent course, is that right? Which is rather lovely, isn't it, to prepare for Christmas, so we're just on the cusp of that. So I thought this morning we'd look at a passage that relates to the Christmas story, but it's very, very rarely read in the Christmas story. And I want to come here because I want to encourage you, really, over Christmas to read the Christmas story in its entirety. That's not from Genesis to Revelation, though that is the Christmas story, of course. I'm not suggesting you do that, but read the whole lot. Because there's always a sense in which we go through the same familiar passages again and again. And it's almost like you can tune out, isn't it? So I want to um, encourage you this morning. And uh, do you remember Helen Shapiro coming here a couple of years ago? That Jewish lady telling us um, about her conversion. Um, having her interest stimulated by what she'd heard, she decided to read this New Testament that Christians spoke so highly about. She didn't hold out much hope, she said, about being persuaded, but she thought she'd better give it a go. And of course she opened, as she would do, logically, her New Testament on page one, and is confronted with a genealogy that we shall read in a moment. And with her Jewish background and understanding of what we call the Old Testament, she became more and more excited as she read this passage, this list of names, as they lead to Jesus. And she made the connection between him and the coming and promised Messiah very quickly. And as I listened to her, I thought, I've never read that genealogy with as much excitement as she did, knowing her scriptures. So I thought it deserved a little bit more of attention than I've been given to it. So this is how it goes. And apologies if I mispronounce any of these names, because it doesn't really matter, because they're not English names, I don't pronounce them in an English way, so my guess is as good as yours, or yours is as good as mine, so forgive me if I read them differently from you. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And there we pause, take a breath, and then we carry on. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Isaiah. Isaiah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. We pause there, take a breath, then we carry on, because that's how he's written it. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotiel. Sheotiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. 
Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Doesn't it thrill your heart? You were really excited about that, weren't you? Actually, a lot of it would have prompted memory from the Old Testament when I read those names, wouldn't it? Stories would have come to your mind. Some people love exploring their family's ancestry. It's a fascinating activity, presumably, because it is your story, your family's history. And one of the things we find most difficult as we read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is you get stuck in the genealogies, don't you? You get to 1 Chronicles and 3 and then you think, ah, right. And you whip on a few more pages and you find page after page of these unpronounceable names. And it's almost impossible not to skip over the names and find some more interesting material. So when we open up our Bibles at the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and get a genealogy, we're very often tempted to move on swiftly to verse 18, to back where the action is. And most of us don't read this bit. This is how Matthew carefully and with malice of forethought, I was going to say, with careful thought, puts his gospel together. He's only got so much room to put everything in he wants to, and he's starting in the way he wants to. So as he chooses his details very meticulously, he begins with a genealogy. Now Mark, who is his informant, he gets most of his material from Mark, doesn't even bother to tell us the genealogy of Jesus. Luke does, and puts his further in when he's got a script with his story. And nor does John tell us the genealogy of Jesus, unless you count tracing his line back to God, a kind of heavenly genealogy. But Matthew's Gospel, more than the other three, really connects the Old Testament and the New Testament together. The old Israel and the new worldwide church of God's people. And so turning the page from the last of the Old Testament books, Malachi, to the first of the New Testament books, Matthew, we're immediately confronted with this linking passage. Now Matthew points out in verse 17 that there are 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations, three lots of 14. He draws our attention to numbers. Now, there are some people who write popular books who suggest you need a degree in statistics or numerology or mathematics in order to understand the Bible. You don't. It is not written in code. It is written in plain speech. But however, he has drawn our attention to numbers in this one, obviously indicating to us that numbers matter on this particular occasion. This genealogy is not complete, which is not in itself unusual. You wrote the names in the genealogy of those who you wanted to find out. So if you compare this one to 1 Chronicles 3, for example, you'll find out there are one or two missing people. So what Matthew has taken is a list of names and cut it down and arrange it so that it makes three lots of 14. It wouldn't do if you included all the names. So he's not playing fast and loose with truth. 
He's making a point about this. You got this? We in our analytical West get annoyed by this kind of behaviour. We say, well, it's either it's true or it's not true. Stick them all in or don't stick them in. But you don't have to do that to give, convey truth because the Eastern mind doesn't think like this. So he's telling us something about the numbering system. And so this is three lots of 14, or you could say six lots of seven. Bringing Jesus to be the seventh seven since Abraham. And seven being the number of completion. It's not the number of perfection. God is one. One is the number of perfection, not seven. Seven is the complete number. So a week is six days and one, making a complete week of seven. So seven speaks of completeness. So when you get to the seven sevens, you're saying something is complete now. And this is what Matthew is communicating to us, even as we open our Bible, which is, I guess, what Helen Shapiro and any other Jewish person would immediately grasp if they had a heart open. Somehow there's a climax coming, a completeness coming, which would really draw them in. So the very bit that, as it were, offends us, annoys us, we get on to the action. Actually, would draw in a Jew and say, ah, I'm going to read the rest of this. What a way to begin a book. Now the opening words in Matthew 1, which is this, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, are usually interpreted as a title to the genealogical table that will follow. But something more may be implied. There is a version of the Bible that was written in Greek by 70 scholars before Jesus turned up, so that the Greek-speaking peoples of those days could actually understand the Hebrew scriptures. And that the Roman numerals for 70 are LXX. So you no doubt have found out in your studies and done this reference to the Septuagint or LXX version. It just means it was made by 70 scholars and translated into Greek. But the words they use are quite significant. And they use the same title, this is the genealogy, in two other places in the Old Testament, and only two other places. It comes in Genesis 2.4 and Genesis 5.1, which do not merely introduce a genealogy, but introduce something profoundly different. Something new is happening. So the choice of this phrase by these translators would communicate to someone who understands the original languages, which I don't, and we miss in our English translation, of something new happening. So we can mean, see something great, complete, and new is happening here. So it's possible that the use of this phrase in Matthew's Gospel deliberately suggests that the coming of Jesus inaugurates a new creation, or at least a new era, in the history of the humanity and the world. In Jesus, God is about to do something profound. Most of our neighbours are going to stick lots of stuff on their houses and make them look really decorative and amuse the neighbours. They're going to go shopping for lots of stuff. They're going to do all they can to gather family together and have some kind of harmonious Christmas and well done them for doing it. But to be honest, it's something through and gone. And in a sense, there'll be a sigh of relief for them in January, apart from the coming of the credit card bill, of course. 
So it's for them a high spot, but it, it's momentary, and it goes through rather like the holidays in the summer or some other major spot. But what we celebrate is something that is a high spot that came and stayed. And as it were, we enter the new year on a high from Christmas. Don't let your heart sink in January, will you? Because the truth of it is that Jesus came and stayed. The thing God was doing was not just a blip on the horizon, but something that profoundly would change the way we see things. So, as we read this, in case we've read from Genesis 12, the start of the story, if you like, with Abraham, to the end of the Old Testament, in the words of another person, a failed first attempt, God's first shot at rescuing people from their sin, full of signs and pointers, no doubt, but not really a history of salvation after all. If we read the Old Testament as a kind of, oh, well, that didn't work, did it? And God turns a page over and wipes that out and says, now let's start properly this time. If you read it like that, you miss it because Jesus is connected to that story in a way that is saying all that's happened up to now finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a failure. It's all been pointing to this moment. Now has come the climax to this story. So he is the God-ordained pinnacle of the story of the Bible. In Jesus' day, many of his contemporaries didn't really believe that the exile their ancestors from 600 years before had suffered in Babylon was actually and completely over. They didn't think it was. After the 70 years of exile in Babylon, predicted by Jeremiah, some of them had gone back to the land, and you can read Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, they tell you that story. They'd rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, but they were still oppressed, even though they were back in their land. They still had foreigners ruling over them. Cyrus the Persian had sent them home, but he was still their emperor. They did not have independence. He had given way to the Greeks who came under Alexander the Great and wiped out the Persians, and they were the ruling party. So the Jews were still not free, but under the heel of an emperor. And the Greeks, in their turn, gave way to the Romans, who ruled Israel as they did the rest of their empire at the time of Jesus with a rod of iron. So at the time of Jesus, and in fact at the time of Matthew writing his gospel, the Jews were still living under oppression. And the great promises of Isaiah and Ezekiel that you will one day be free, one day saved, had still not taken place. So they still thought of themselves as being in exile. Now if we go to an exilic prophet called Daniel, actually the, old, the, the Jews don't think of his book as a prophecy. It's strange that they took it as history. But anyway, there you go. Kind of everything, can you? Uh, Daniel has this prophecy. This is how we see it. In the first year, this is Daniel 9, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Remember that, Jeremiah 20, 29? 70 years and I'll come back and get you, says God. And he did. In roughly speaking, 70 years, they were back. Haggai, Zechariah, and all that lot crowd. So they're still in exile at the moment that Daniel's having this dream, okay? Or this, this idea. So he prays 
to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we've sinned. Um, let me pick up the verse, verse 20. Um, while I was speaking, oh sorry, no, verse 17. Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We don't make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. So he remembers that Jeremiah had said 70 years and you'll come back. He says, oh, that's about to happen now. So he prays, Lord, do it. Keep your promise. Hear our prayers. Act now and do it. The reply he received was not very encouraging. The exile, he was told, would last not 70 years, but 70 weeks of years. 70 times 7 years, which is a very long time. So it was both an encouragement and a discouragement. He was hoping that the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah would come to an end soon, about now. So he's praying his heart out that God would do it. The reply God gives is, no, not 70, but 70 times 7. 490 years. Now numbers are not merely random. They're significant to a Jew. Every seven days they had a Sabbath, do no work. This is a day when you particularly focus on God. God has been part of your life every day of the week, but on this particular day I want you to cut off all the other things you normally do and focus on God. That was their rhythm of life. Every seven years they had a sabbatical year when they didn't plant their crops. And they had so much in the sixth year that it lasted the sixth year, the seventh year, the eighth year, and into the ninth year when the eighth year's crop came in, if you get what I mean. Because God wanted them to have this Sabbath year off. You gave all the land a rest. And every seven times seven years, they had or were supposed to have a jubilee year. And a jubilee year was when the slaves would be freed. Land sold off in the last 49 years would be restored to you. And things were put back as they should be. It was a time of celebration. Showing that the relentless buying and selling of land, goods and people wouldn't have the last words. But 70 times 7? That sounds like a jubilee of jubilees, doesn't it? It sounds like a momentous occasion for celebration. So although it was nearly a half a millennium into the future, when it came it will be the greatest redemption of all. It will be the greatest setting free of slaves of all, of returning people to the land that could ever be imagined. This was the hope that sustained the Jews through the Persian Empire, through the Greek Empire, through the Roman Empire, that one day God would do something magnificent, something grand, that would leave all the other significant things he had done in the shade. So obviously, as we would have done, the Jews spent many years working out when that grand jubilee would finally come. And Matthew 
in his careful construction of a simple thing like a genealogy is telling us it's come. Did you get that? This is the moment you've been waiting for. So instead of years, he's using genealogy, generations. And the generations of Israel's entire history from Abraham up to the present time with the coming of Jesus. So he misses out some of them in order to become neatly three lots of 14 or six lots of seven. And with Jesus we arrive at the seventh seventh, the Jubilee, in person. The one hoped for, writ large. He'll come most unexpectedly in a most unexpected way. But if you were a careful Jew reading this genealogy, if you had a heart open for your history, if you understood things and were open to the Spirit of God to help you, you would be known simply by the way Matthew has compiled his genealogy. You would tingle with excitement. This is the moment we have been waiting for for generations. This is the moment that Daniel prophesied. Now please don't think that God is sort of ticking off days and get to the exact one. You've already got the impression that we're not talking about precision here, we're talking about impression here. And the impression Matthew is giving is this is the time. So when the Holy Spirit in verse 21 of Matthew 1 says this to Joseph, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because... He will save his people from their sins. It's not just a kind of, isn't that nice? And won't you be pleased about God? He's telling the Jews, this is what you've been waiting for. To save people from their sins is to wipe the slate clean. Is to wipe the exile clean. Is to restore the people to the land. That's what it communicates. Not just a nice, and would you like to be saved? And would you like to be saved? Well, you can be. That's part of it. But to a Jew, it's much more significant that, than that. Much bigger than that. For him, for a Jew, a first century Jew, forgiveness of sins means the end of the exile. Freedom at last. Now, of course, we know that the freedom God is talking about is something other than a physical deliverance from a physical oppressor but a much bigger freedom nonetheless. You'll have noticed that Isaiah has the same number of chapters as the Bible has books. And many people think that Isaiah is written by two people because the two halves are very different. I don't think that, not that I have any basis for saying that, but I think if it's written by one bloke, it's written by one bloke. But it's two very different parts and they separate on chapter 39 and 40. Chapter 39 is the end of the first half and chapter 40 is the beginning of the second half. They're very different halves. Now, if you count 39 books, you get to the end of the Old Testament. The 40th book is the beginning of the New Testament. And John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, is described in, in Matthew in terms that Fulfill Isaiah 40. So, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 3, this is he, talking about John the Baptist, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
That quote from Isaiah comes in chapter 40, the first chapter of the second half. John the Baptist turns up in the first book of the second half of the Bible. You've got the parallels here? You can see what's happening? The Bible isn't just a random collection of stuff joined together. And here I'm not saying it's clever stuff and you've got to be a PhD to understand it. Not at all. But God is a God of order and he puts stuff in order and makes a point in order. But before the quote that Matthew gives in chapter 3 from Isaiah comes this one in Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people. So the very first words that come in the second half of the book of Isaiah are these. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard surface has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now Isaiah, this is really, it gets really weird, so try and follow me here, would you? Isaiah is prophesying in the 8th century BC, 200 years before the thing he's prophesying, which is you're going to go into exile. Okay, He's looking down the centuries. So he's looking and prophesying something will happen 150, 200 years into the future as far as Isaiah is concerned. But in chapter 40 he goes beyond that and tells them that they're going to come back. All right? So the first 39 chapters have been telling them about what's going to happen with this exile because of their wretched sinfulness. But chapter 40 comes and says, you've come back. But they haven't even gone yet. But you see, this is what prophets can do. And that's exactly the emphasis of the Gospels, isn't it? That this is the moment that humanity has been waiting for. God to do something will, will restore us to himself. So it's not hard to believe that Matthew, Isaiah 40 was in Matthew's mind when he was compiling the opening to his gospel. There's plenty of other Old Testament references right the way through Matthew that help us to understand that he deliberately is doing this. So Jesus is presented as a rightful heir to God's promises to Abraham and to David's throne. Are we doing all right here? Have I baffled you too much? Or have you got the idea? You picking this up? Give me a nod if you think so. Otherwise, no? Whew, good. I've got to keep... Oh, my goodness. I'm running out of time. Okay. So the opening phrase, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, binds the gospel narrative that will follow to the Old Testament. And Matthew is saying, this man is the fulfillment of all that. Abraham was the one who was promised that through his descendants the whole nations, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, this is the one through whom it's going to happen. David was the greatest king. The Jews would always look back on David's life, not Solomon's, interestingly enough, as their golden era. Well, this is the one who comes to fulfill God's promise to David that he would always have a son on the throne. So everything that God had promised Abraham is inherited by Jesus. Paul will later pick up this point in Galatians. He will say, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And Paul is saying, and they are. Because this is the generation 
It's going to happen in this is a descendant. And Matthew emphasizes with the structure of his genealogy, three lots of 14, the character of the coming of Jesus as a Davidic Messiah. We have the first 14 takes the story of the origin and rise of David's house. It ends with Jesse, the father of King David. Interestingly, loads of these people are actually kings, but they're not called kings. The only person who's called a king is David, because Matthew wants to emphasize the kingship of David, not the others. So the first 14 gives us the rise of the kingdom of David. The second 14 from verse uh, 6a, 6b on to 11 gives us the fall of the kingdom right the way through to the exile. The rise of the kingdom in the first 14 verses, the fall of the kingdom in the second 14 generations, and then the quiet rise again of the kingdom that will last in the final 14, and it will come to great David's greater son. Matthew seems preoccupied with David, mentioning him five times in these 17 verses, alone as king, although others were kings. So Abraham and David are singled out as pivotal points in this. So Jesus is going to be the saviour of all humanity. So Matthew is telling his story, if I can quote someone, in such a way as to say, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Even though we would never have thought it would be like this, this is where the single story of Abraham's family, of David's offspring, of the restoration from exile was going all along. We didn't think it would look like this, but now that it's happened, we can see that this is where it was supposed to be heading all along. The Gospel writers saw the events concerning Jesus as bringing the long story of Israel to its proper goal, even though that long story had apparently become lost, stuck, and all but forgotten. This is what Israel has been waiting for through her long history ever since Abraham was given the promise. Through the long years of David and through the centuries that have come and gone since a Babylonian exile. This is what Israel has been looking for. But this is also what the world has been waiting for ever since Genesis Chapter 3, since the first man and woman incurred on behalf of all humanity enslavement to sin and the expectation of fearful judgment and through the centuries of senseless selfishness, greed and of every kind of wickedness, this is what the world has been waiting for and this is what the world is still waiting for. In Jesus, God was about to do something profound and earth-changing. Jesus was then, my friends, and is now the hope of the nations. So when you read your Christmas story again, read it like you've never read it before. Read it as God saying, this is it. This is the answer. As you read your newspapers and watch the television screens of the horrific things that are happening, and the world begins to tremble and shake, lift up your head. For your redemption draws near. Jesus was then and is now God's answer to the despair of the world. There is no other answer. 
God has done all that's needed to be done. God has acted in power. And our retelling of the story of Christmas is not for some sentimental reason in comfortable little buildings protected from the world outside. God did the most robust thing. Christmas is all about God robustly confronting the forces of evil and saying, this is the way I will deal with things. So let me encourage you, read your Christmas story and read it with your eyes wide open to the Holy Spirit's interpretation. And if you have any opportunity at all to share the truth with other people, take it and tell them that Jesus is the hope for the world. Let me pray. Father, we have already spent time just quietly and aloud giving thanks to you for what you have done. But we have to say always, Lord, the biggest thing you've ever done for the whole world is giving Jesus to us. And in him providing all that's needed to restore and reconcile mankind to you and to restore and reconcile the world to you so that your new creation can come into being. Father, you do all things very well indeed. And as we celebrate Christmas, we enjoy it, Lord. We don't want to be overwhelmed by the practicalities. We want to be overwhelmed with the grace of God. We're not going to go around badgering our neighbours, Lord, but as your Holy Spirit gives opportunity here and there, let us speak with such joy in our hearts of the one who has transformed our lives and can transform theirs too. The one who is truly the only hope for all nations and every nation. We celebrate Jesus, Lord. So may that story come alive to each of us in fresh ways as we plumb even more the depths of the love of God in the story of the Christ child. For his sake. Amen.